and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host, and Happy New Year to everyone out there. I hope you all have a happy and healthy 2024. And as we've heard, oh, I should say at least I've heard a number of people say, uh, including uh, Blue Elizondo, that uh, hold on to your hats. This year is going to be incredible. I think 2023 has been incredible. And uh, actually, we're going to be talking about that in our crossfire this week, Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we'll be back uh, together uh, and talking about what has occurred in the UFO world over this last year. Our guest tonight is Beatrice Videro, and I'm very excited to have her on. And uh, hopefully I pronounced her name somewhat uh, okay. And uh, she has been um, an astro, uh, in the, uh, an astronomer who has uh, really searched into this great uh, theory that uh, kind of coincides with the flap that we had over Washington, D.C. Uh, back in 1952. And it's really very interesting. And she's going to be talking about that and the search for extraterrestrial probes. It should be a really interesting uh, show today. As far as our uh, blog this week, it's Disney Does UFOs, and that's by Charles Lear, as always. And that's also an audio blog on our show. Next week, we have uh, Cody and Neil from UFO Database. And we are ready to kick in again. Uh, Happy New Year, everyone. And I hope it's a great one. Welcome, Beatrice. Hello. Very nice to be here. And Happy New Year to you and everyone. Thank you. And I should also say this is a pre-recorded show because if you were on at the regular time, you'd be uh, you'd be a night owl for sure in the middle of the night uh, where you are. I think it's like six o'clock where you are now, or it's just after six. Exactly. So, yeah, really you'll be. Uh, the time here is yeah twelve uh, twelve thirty p.m. So yeah, we're many hours apart. Yeah, you'd be in the middle of the night, but uh, so. Um, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before this uh, recording and, you know, Avi Loeb was someone that kind of gave you a, a, you know, a little courage to actually look into this type of thing. And but let's talk about your background and, and how you get interested in what you do and all that. I mean, you have quite a uh, quite a pedigree, quite a, a great background. So I did my Ph.D. in Uppsala uh, at Uppsala University and finished it in 2017. And uh, for you, uh, most of you maybe never heard about Uppsala, but if you like uh, Ingmar Bergman movies, you might associate the city with uh, a movie called Fanny and Alexander. Uh, it usually is about Christmas time in Uppsala. And wow. uh, so for those of you who love movies. Anyway, so my PhD was in very regular astronomy about active galactic nuclei and quasars. And, but in my Last year of my PhD, I got really obsessed with the idea of looking for vanishing objects and vanishing stars. I was wondering, like, mm. has anyone ever looked for a star that just vanished? Because um, we all know that if a star dies, either it goes into a massive uh, explosion, a supernova, or it's going to take billions of years and fade into a white dwarf. And I was wondering, hey, what if it just would vanish? And then I started mm. examining this thing. And to do so, I had to use images from the 50s and compare them to images to like of the sky as it looks today. And this is something I, we did manually, me and two bachelor students, where we had to look through a lot of objects. 
and that uh, gave birth to the so-called Vanishing and Appearing Sources during a Century of Observations project, the Vasco project, which mm. uh, is actually a large-scale project where we have good scientists, many very skilled professionals who have been helping to search for vanishing objects because we wanted to find a star that vanishes. We found something completely different. And that's where things got fun. Mm. Well, this is exciting. I mean, I mean, just to come up with that idea of things that have vanished, uh, you know, I mean, uh, as just a, a sky watcher myself and, you know, with a n not such great telescope or whatever, but I've always been, you know, fascinated by this type of thing. And then I remember when I was a kid saying, oh, my God, that star is ch changing colors. It's turning red and, you know, all this, not even knowing anything about the atmosphere and all that, you know, it's just uh, pretty interesting. But, so that's exciting. So uh, let's talk about what you actually found. I mean, is this an ongoing project as well? It's still ongoing. We're actually uh, wrapping up the results of the citizen science project because uh, we have been doing it with automated searches with help of my colleague Enrique Solano, and that is at the Spanish Virtual Observatory in Madrid. And we have also been doing a citizen science project. Uh, where we have been working a lot with citizen scientists, mainly in Algeria and in Nigeria. And we have amateur astronomers, scientists and uh, students who are all helping to search for vanishing objects. You know, we have had a web page currently down. Actually, also our main page uh, is unfortunately currently down since three weeks back. We're trying to fix the problem. But um, yes, we have been working uh, with this Vasco and we're wrapping up the first phase results. It has been several years of data collection. Hmm. Now, would this be a time to show one of the, uh, any, any of the images or would you want to, do we carry on about? Uh, we can carry on. Uh, yeah, okay. And so what is, uh, what when you said something, you found something more interesting, what, what were the details in that? So, um, we found an image where you can see nine star-like objects in an image from the 12th of April, 1950. I actually sent you that image. So oh, yes. Let me get that up here. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And these that will all be in the, the show notes. For those who, who, if you are listening to our audio podcast, this will be in the show notes, these images. So you basically see here uh, an image uh, from the 12th of April, 1950, and you compare it uh, to a later image, like uh, 30 years later. And uh, what you see there is that there are nine objects that are there in one, and they are not there in the later. We compare it to the sky also like half an hour earlier. They weren't there, nor six days later in exactly the same type of uh, emulsion. And uh, what, what it tells us is that it's some kind of phenomenon that appears to uh, uh, be very on very short timescales, so that you see nine objects appearing and vanishing within one hour. And that's something mm. that really puzzled us because there's nothing astronomical in the sky in 1950 that could produce that result. Uh, the only thing that can and, give you something yeah. in the directions are artificial objects, satellites, but these are seven years before Sputnik 1. So now that got interesting for me. Right. And this, I would say, is obviously taken from the same telescope, right? I mean, yes. there's no... I'm trying to think of what other uh, other differences. Like, what would a someone that was skeptical of this? I know science is always skeptical, but yeah. how was this treated when when you uh, 
oh, when you discover this, people will of course say that this must be some kind of plate defects. And it's also something we were wondering: what if it's some kind of contamination? Could it be contamination by, like, uh, let's say, nuclear fallout from an atomic bomb? If it mm. would be nuclear fallout from an atomic bomb, then you would have the entire plate uh, covered in these things, and we didn't see that. It, they seem to be concentrated mm. in this region uh, from the tests that we were doing. And uh, let's say also if you would have nuclear fallout, there is no reason why the shapes would be so similar to those of the real stars. And it's the same thing if you think of plate defects. Plate defects have all kinds of random shapes. They can be elongated, they can be a little hair, or it could be some little thing like that, it could be just a triangle-like. But why would all nine of them have star-like brightness profiles and be looking like the stars? Of course, these are pretty faint. These ones are quite faint, so maybe when you're close to the detection limit, it's more difficult to say something or not. Anyway, so we, we posted the, these different ideas of that it could be some kind of contamination, but maybe it's also real. The funny thing that uh, one of my colleagues noticed was that if you look at that image, some of them seem to be along a line, that you could arrange them along lines, which was like, hmm. Oh, I and see. Mm -hmm. so, so, so that kind of made us slightly wonder, like, uh, what if it's some kind of movement? So, so these are the various ideas you can play with, whether you're skeptical or less skeptical, uh, because we never know what it turns out to be in the end. Right. I mean, don't you think there are so many mysteries anyway when it comes to the cosmos? I mean, like we just seem to know so little really about. And there's what makes it exciting, I think, must be exciting for you is that there's new things that happen all the time that don't make any sense. And we have to try to figure out how to make I sense out of these things. I yeah. really enjoy it. Take a look at dark yeah. matter. I've been looking for dark matter for I know how many, 70 years, or I, I always forget the number of decades. But yeah. uh, they still haven't found anything. They put up the whole LHC. This is something where they should find something, and they find nothing. So, and, and here people have been pretty confident that there must be some kind of uh, hidden mass, but maybe there is nothing. Maybe there's just a lot for us to discover when it comes to physics. Quasars are all uh, another thing. They have, isn't it like a, such a burst of energy? It's incredible. And isn't, are they rhythmic? Sorry, are they what? Do they, do they make like a rhythmic uh, pulsing or something like that? Am I thinking about the right thing when it comes to quasars or is that something else that has like the pulse? Um, I think you're thinking of pulsars. Quasars usually have fluctuations. That <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's right in the name, pulsar. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> now I'm going to edit this out. <laughs> I'm editing out. Okay. We can keep the topic of aliens, so, maybe. So. Okay. Or, so let's talk. Let's let's start that over again. So I'm so glad it's not live now with all these uh, things here. So yeah. So as far as quasars, what when your study of of quasars, I think that's interesting. What is a quasar exactly? So imagine you have a supermassive black hole that is accreting lots of uh, gas uh, onto it. Uh, sometimes this gas can be really really luminous. So you get lots of lots of uh, light coming from this region, uh, from this very hot gas. And what happens then is that you can get a core inside a galaxy that is so super, super much shining, so much light that it's going to uh, outshine the rest of the galaxy. And it looks like a, like a, 
um, it, it can look very compact, like a compact light com uh, that comes out from the center of a galaxy. And that is one of these huge enigmas of how one actually produces all that energy. And you have different classes of them, uh, different spectral types, and it can be dusty, they can be less dusty, they can have radio jets, they can lack radio jets. Yeah. Anyway, this was a topic I worked with a lot more in the past than in the last year, I would say. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I've heard that if we had a supernova, you know, I forget how many light years away, but it could really affect us here on Earth. I mean, that's with all the stars out there, you would think that we I know we've detected. I think we've detected. I can't remember. I've heard we've detected a few of them or one or something. But I mean, is there's a astronomy astronomy cast I used to listen to that and I remember well, one of the hosts just saying that uh, the universe is always out to kill us <laughs> you know there's so many different ways but uh, well, let's, let's hope that our closest star doesn't go supernova yeah oh that's right yeah which is uh um it goes fast it, Beta Reticuli, is that the one? I'm trying to think of the one that's our closest star, right? About four and a half light years away or something. Um, I was thinking of Alpha Centauri more. Oh, yeah, that's what, that's right. Yeah, I got it mixed up, right, yeah. yeah. So you can see I'm just, I, I just look at this from the surface, not as deeply as you do. But so let's talk about the 1952 and the relationship with the Washington DC. Yes. Um, do you want to go ahead? <laughs> oh, no, I, no, I, I want, I want, we, so we had this flap uh, over Washington DC in 1952 and there was some type of relationship with the images, right? Well, uh, I wouldn't say so. I say we, there might be, and there might not be, it might be a coincidence, uh, so, mm -hmm. but maybe not all viewers know. Uh, about Washington DC flap and uh, myself, I also don't know much about it. I'm just an astronomer, not a ufologist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you've you made some type of connection. Now this was uh, um, not, people confuse this a lot. I could pull up the image or I'll put it in the show notes where um, you'll see like lights over the Capitol. And that is a, uh, that's an image anomaly. That's actually the lights on the ground reflecting up in the sky through the camera. but um, it was not seen on the ground. It was all seen on radar. And they, it was in 1952. I don't have the exact date but uh, when that happened, but anyone can research this, where uh, we sent up, um, I think it was a few days in a row, we sent up fighter jets to explore what these things were, and uh, they would vanish, and they would come back as soon as they'd land. And there was really something going on, and uh, it caused, actually, for the Air Force to come out and basically say that there's nothing going on here. They've been pretty good at that over so the years. Were, um, it was happening between like 12th of July until 29th of July, 1952. And then there were two weekends when it peaked. And the first weekend when it peaked, I think was uh, 19th to 20th of July. And the second weekend was 26th to 27th of July. So these were the peak dates of mm. this uh, Washington flap. And I think they had radar observations, sometimes multiple radar observations, and they also had uh, sightings even from reliable witnesses like uh, um, pilots and stewardesses and people who are trained and also, of course, the people who worked with the radar and military yeah. personnel. 
well, uh, on the air controller uh, towers. Is it called air controller towers? Or? Or, uh, yeah, control towers, yes. Control towers, yeah. 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 Uh, and uh, so this is, of course, it's an exciting story that I never in my life heard about. It's supposed to be the most uh, well-known UFO event. And as an astronomer who always works on things, from the astronomy perspective, I was entirely blind to its existence. So Dave Altman pointed it out to me. Um, mm -hmm. And um, it, it's also quite interesting because there was um, this astronomer um, called Donald Menzel who, uh, who said that this was probably some kind of um, um, like temperature inversion, some kind of a meteorological effect that would cause some, cause some kind of mirages and uh, like false images. Uh, and uh, he, um, so he was used to, or he was cited by the US Air Force to debunk the whole thing. The radar observations were debunked and also the testimonies. And despite that it was something like 30 times more of sightings reported in July, 1952 in comparison to previous years. Um, Anyway, so that, that was quite interesting. So he, uh, Donald Mansell, I think he was a very famous skeptic in ufology yes. after. But we can come back right. to him later. Uh, I will tell a fun story later about it. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So, so uh, we didn't make any connection, but uh, like Dave Altman, he noticed that our latest finding in the Vasco um, we we have recently published a paper about a particularly beautiful example where you see three objects that appear and vanish, and they are so bright that it completely likes um, minimizes the chances for the plate defect hypothesis because they are simply bright, beautiful, perfectly star-like. No, that's another one. Um, okay. Uh, exactly Is that this part. Of it? Yes. Oh, I see them right there in the circled right in the center, how bright they are. Exactly. So this one was discovered by Enrique Solano, and they happened on the 19th of July, 1952, which by coincidence <laughs> is on the first weekend of the Washington flap. Now we need to say that the telescope is on the other side of the country. It's not anywhere close to Washington, D.C. It's in California. Still, it was wow. a bit that our most uh, beautiful example ever happens on the most famous UFO event, especially as we've been like uh, wondering if the other multiple transit cases we are finding are some kind of UFOs or something artificial, either emitting light or reflecting sunlight. Wow. Yeah. You know, that, that just, that is really such a blatant example there of that cluster of three. And, uh, you know, I mean, just devil's advocate, what if it was something that was incoming, you know, when that picture was taken? You know, I mean, I'm just saying the possibility of it. I'm not saying that I know anything, but uh, that sure is. Uh, so this will be, uh, again, in the show notes, if you're listening to the audi audio only. Yeah, well, we wrote uh, very, uh, like, very interesting. <laughs> we wrote a very discreet paper where we discussed the gravitational lensing hypothesis. Um, and there you can imagine that you have some kind of gravitational lens that is something like, uh, imagine if you have a supermassive black hole that is 10 times as massive as the Milky Way and it's outside the solar system, maybe then you can produce that kind of effect. But we don't know if it's possible or not. Um, 
uh, anyway, it's, it still might be some kind of gravitational lensing effects that we haven't managed to kind of entirely model and what are the implications of it, if that is the case. However, we found more of these cases. And I remember that after that, they pointed out that, yeah, you know, there's a very funny coincidence here with uh, uh, this 19th of July, the Washington flap. Then I went and I looked at uh, another example. We had another paper that we posted on archive last year. And that's a paper that is kind of the never published paper where we had been looking for, like, if they are, I have, I have asked the hypothesis, if they are actually uh, alien objects, then, and if they are reflecting sunlight and they are uh, in high altitude orbits around the Earth in 1950, some of these might also be aligned on a line. So we did some statistics and we made a prediction that if you find, let's say, four or five in a line, or more or less in a line, um, then you are having a good candidate for it to be alien. So we searched for it and we found two top candidates and one in particular beautiful, or both of them were quite cute and that were statistically improbable. And, and one was like one in 10,000. And we sent that paper to <laughs> journal after journal that just didn't even send it to peer review most. Like they just rejected it right at the editor's desk saying, no, we don't deal with this topic of UFOs oh. or near earth settings wow. like didn't even go to review and anyway it's still wow. there it has a wrong date uh for these candidates because i somehow i read it wrongly or there was a, like something wrong in the fits file i later went back some weeks ago looked at it and it was from the 27th of july 1952 and uh, so i think you have one of these images um uh, the other one Oh, sorry. Uh, let's see. Right here. We go. Yes. And yep. there, this is one, the probability for this alignment is something like one in 10,000. And uh, at the same mm. time, the 27th of July, 1952, is the second weekend of the Washington flap. That's where I ah. thought it was getting funny. So, of course, it can be coincidences, two very funny coincidences, because coincidences happen. We have to prove that it's actually there's some correlation, but it certainly gives ideas of how to do searches from now on, of like examining these time periods. So yes, these are two very funny and peculiar coincidences, and it was our top candidate from that paper. Uh, so of course, it wow. got quite exciting, and we can wonder, was this something happening during the Washington flap that left records? Um, really? Wow. So the, the thing... I have to ask you right off the bat is it's a really, really big sky <laughs> and how, I mean, that sounds like such tedious work to oh try to God. find something missing from one oh image God. to another. That's why we did automated searches. It took two years for my colleague who, who is amazing. He's, he's like a, he does magic with computers and he were like sifting through all these terabytes of images to search for things that differ, but like in those times with today, and also we have a citizen science project where we manually have been looking through 150,000 objects where all citizens have been going in and looking for them. Now these were found with the automated methods. And once we have finalized the first phase of the citizen science project, we'll see what we find there. But yes, that now, was has a lot of work. Has the, yeah, a lot of work. Has the topic of rogue planets 
ever come up into the possibility of what these might be? You know, uh, wandering planets? Uh, we haven't uh, been looking into that at all, but who knows? Yeah. I kind of would expect them not to move away that fast in half an hour. Oh, uh, oh of course. Yeah. And plus being reflective, you know, unless they're, you know, unless there was bright sunshine uh, emanating on top of them, you'd never even see them, right? I mean, they, they, they were bright on their own. I'm sometimes so, more wondering, like, what if gravitational lensing effects exist that uh, could make people believe that they see UFOs? Maybe there is some gravitational lens we never even knew about that is really massive and not far away that makes people think that they see something blinking on the sky. That is weird. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It also has hit my mind. And also I've been wondering, like, what if... What if there were some nuclear bomb tests done high up in the atmosphere uh, during the Washington flap? And mm. what we saw were actually uh, some kind of auroras that, like, because apparently uh, high altitude uh, or uh, like uh, nuclear bomb tests or uh, those that are done outside the atmosphere can produce aurora like events. Maybe we would have our plates contaminated and other people would see it somehow um simply uh, and if they are not used to it if they have never seen an uh, aurora maybe they would also confuse it this is also something i've been slightly thinking about but maybe it's too far-fetched it feels almost like the well, UFOs are easier yeah. yeah i mean you would think i mean i'm sure i don't know if the, all the tests are classified or not if the if something like this was done by say the united states if they would have done something like that in secret it seems like uh i don't know if someone would have talked about it by now but you never know you know i mean uh they certainly try to keep things secret when they have something to cover up like that that definitely would be something they wouldn't be putting out there i don't think you know uh, i was uh quite interested in trying to get harvard plates um harvard has a wonderful plate collection something like five hundred thousand uh plates wow. and it's, it's like super impressive and i really hope they're going to make it go online because it has been off for several years then it has they tried to put it on again for two weeks ago i tried to look at the plates now and it wasn't possible to download but they have a really impressive plate collection and they are closer to washington dc than this palomar so of course you wonder what could be seen on the sky. Then I learned something super funny, <laughs> like super, super funny. So um, they have this plate collection. And then there was this guy, the UFO skeptic, Donald Menzel. So apparently when he came to Harvard as a new director in 1952, he ordered the destruction of a part of the plate collection. Oh my God. And it's even better in 53, he stops uh, Harvard from taking new images of the sky. So they call it the Menzel gap and 15 years of no observations. And there you might start wondering, like, could it be a connection? <laughs> of course, it's a conspiracy theory. I, well, I don't know how much of a <laughs> conspiracy that would be because I remember talking to, um, I don't, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the name Stanton Friedman. I, uh, I came across his article about Mansell while I was searching about it. Yeah, yeah. So I was just going to talk. He's he's done a lot of research. He did a lot of research into Donald Mansell and had 
uh, quite, well, I don't want to say the conspiracy, but that he was involved in other things, you know, uh, in intelligence and things like that. So this is an image of him at some oh. point. Um, yeah, but I, I watched something kind of ironically last night, 1966, uh, Walter Cronkite on UFOs. And it was basically, uh, you know, the whole show was basically about debunking or having an answer for uh, UFOs. And Donald Menzel played a part in that. He was being, uh, and he was involved in that as well. And basically talking about the anomalies, really nothing to see here. Um, yeah. There was someone, there was an astronomer who did an interview about my Vasco transients before the whole stuff with uh, multiple transients. And then he claimed in that interview that it was a plate from the 40s that had been destroyed. I don't know if it's true or not. I would really like to know because 1947, of course, was interesting. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm just wondering, just wondering if I, I'd like to know which plates were sacrificed. And why would they be in the first place? Is it a storage issue? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. These are probably glass plates. I would imagine yeah. back then. I guess it was so, a story. They, they were referring to storage issues and uh, like, uh, I get budget issues, but still it's interesting that the most famous debunker is the one who orders the uh, destruction, especially when we see exciting stuff in the photographic place, actually. Um, right. I'm probably yeah. should be saying these things openly, but I still can't resist thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a really good point. Now, has Alvi Loeb ever seen any of your work that you're aware of? Uh, yes, he has. Um, he has seen them. He knows about them. That's great. Uh, he's been on the show many times. I, I love what he's been trying to do. He's kind of like the trailblazer for someone like you that um, can look into these things, you know, with an open, that's what science really should be. Not like you're talking about this uh, journal that says, no, we're, we don't do, you know, this type of thing. Well, that's pretty close-minded for them to not even explore it. It's going to change, I think. Uh, we, yeah. we just need to have to, 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 I mean, if we find real proof that are going to be irrefutable, I think the journals will also change. It's just a stigma that needs time to uh it needs time to wash away and uh avi is doing so important and inspiring work because i think he opened up the mind of many people in the younger generation like to dare to go to the, in this direction because otherwise we have all these people who are guarding and saying you know you can't go there everyone will think you're crazy you say okay yeah. but avi is doing that so if they can think he's crazy then let them think that i'm crazy too so yeah. it's like <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Bobby. <laughs> but no, that's great. And you know, I mean, I talked to him one time and he said that he had a knock on the door that morning. And he said, someone, you know, said hi, you know, introduced themselves, and they said, I'd like to write you a check. So, and it was for a lot of money, you know, for his research. And, you know, came right to his door. <laughs> so amazing. I mean, I think it's it's great that uh, you know there he has people behind him, also that uh, and you know he's he's assembled quite a group of people, and the Galileo project and Fantastic. yeah I think it's it's all really good, and you know I mean, 
I like the, what he said many times when he's been on this show, and that's basically the curiosity of a child. We should all have the curiosity of a child and exactly. learn from that. And instead of just saying, no, this can't be because it's too much to think about or something like that, it's not a very good approach, which unfortunately a lot of people have uh, when it comes to science in this. And I totally agree. So, it's, it's so important to be curious and... For me, it's a driving force, curiosity. And I know, yeah, I go in weird directions, but at least I'm having an adventure, a real adventure. And I don't think many others have that when they do science. Right, exactly. I think that's great. And what about AI? Is that able to help you? Like, I could imagine that you could probably feed some of these plates um, into AI and it could say, oh, this wasn't here or this, you know, this is different or... You know, it, it seems like that would be a great tool. It eventually. could we actually even have an AI implemented in the citizen science project. However, the automated methods that my colleague developed are so powerful that we don't even need an AI at this moment. Ah, so, right? wow. so yeah. if we can solve it in a simpler way, we will do it in the simpler way. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But anyway, we have an AI implemented in the citizen science, as I mentioned. And we can see if there's any qualitative difference of the results or not. And that will be interesting to do. Um, you know, whether whether this has anything to do, of course, this is a show about UFOs. So, you know, I'd really like this to be a, a connection. But whether it has a connection or not, it sounds to me like it's really something fascinating. And um, it seems like, you know, it would be breaking news that these whatever these objects were that appeared to be stars are not there. Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty major if you if you ask I, me. I think right now still many astronomers are skeptical, thinking you know it's probably some kind of plate defect. There were so many plate defects in the past, and unless you saw things on two plates, you just threw them away. And I, I heard those kind of arguments many times, and, and I'm thinking that okay, so we we can test this. If these phenomena exist, we should be able to observe them on the sky today too. The problem is that today mm -hmm. we have contamination and that's uh, however there are some ways how you can trick um, the, the contamination or let's say trick the, um, the, the what's called trick the survey that gives you all these satellite blinks and uh, we created a new project called exoprobe where you actually basically filter away all the human satellites and all the human space debris and you can search for these objects. Now, it's a lot of work and it's a, a lot of like logistics because now we are going to go with modern equipment, with uh, like wide field uh, telescopes and like uh, cameras with very like fast frame rates. And we're going to search for things like this kind of multiple transients on the sky today and search for these ET probes. And we're working on that, on setting up these projects. Difficult, mm. very difficult, lots of challenges, unexpected challenges. But uh, I'm all in for trying to see if we can verify this with an entirely independent instrumentation and technique. Mm -hmm. Now, what prior to any of this type of things, had you ever considered, you know, that uh, a, the UFO topic at all? Had, did that was there any part of nothing? No, I, I was. I think I was uh, spending too much time with a lot of skeptics, you know, that mm -hmm. had an attitude a little bit. And 
I when I started getting interested in SETI, I know all the people who came to me and said, you know, you're destroying your career. You have this, you, you, you were so promising in this uh, topic of AGN. You should go in that direction. Once you start doing SETI, everything will go bad, you know, because it's difficult wow. to get funding. You will uh, be considered as a crackpot. People will not take you seriously. You will not get positions. You will be, you know, I got this warning discussions from several senior scientists who wanted to, to protect me. Yet I went in that direction. But you can imagine in this cult, in this environment, the UFO topic is very stigmatized. So I hadn't been okay. considering UFOs until we found something weird, which happened. Like I found this, uh, I think, in the late February or beginning of March 2020, when the pandemics just started. Yeah. <laughs> so it coincided with that time, and I was like, "Hey, I seen something really weird. Why would I care? Because the, we're anyway going to have a huge pandemic now. We don't know where we will be." in three months or in six months. So I completely oh, couldn't yeah. care about the stigma. I just went to examine things. And with time, I also this um, Pentagon report was coming out at the same time. And uh, we published our first paper in the beginning of June uh, 2021. A few weeks before Galileo started, we also had started with the searches for like glints along a line. So these two things coincided time-wise our searches for uh, ET probes outside the Earth's atmosphere and the Galileo project starting, starting up and the Pentagon report coming out. <laughs> so this thing. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, yeah, I, I had to really like, um, it's been a stepwise process for me. Even if you would right. ask me in an interview two years ago, I would be very dismissing of UFOs, but now, seeing these examples of multiple transients really changed my perspective, but also seeing and knowing about that they coincide, just the coincidence with the Washington flap of our two best examples by chance. It also mm -hmm. makes me wonder much more. So I'm opening up much more now lately than I was some years ago. And Excellent. Uh, well, I'm glad. <laughs> it I makes me happy that someone like you would would actually take a look at this you know you uh, you hear of course you know i've had a number of astronomers including uh seth shostak from seti who's on here on the show and you know basically the argument is you know it's a physics problem we can't they can't get here from there you know but um you know i've always argued and always thought well maybe there's something um, that they've discovered beyond what we know about physics, that there's a way to do it somehow or whatever. Um, but, um, when it comes to, when it comes to the idea of, uh, intelligent life, wouldn't you say that most astronomers think that there's probably most likely intelligent life out there? Mm, I think it depends on, uh, who you ask. If you ask people in the SETI community, you have a bias. Everyone says yes, of course, yeah. or it's likely. Um, but if you ask just our regular astronomer, many will say, "Yeah, it might be," but maybe it's uh, or maybe it's it's not at the same time. Maybe they already died out. And I, I heard all kind of arguments. I think in the general astronomy community, there is a very diverse uh, set of opinions. Now, if you ask the SETI community, of course, people more believe. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing SETI research. You wouldn't 
bet on that. I am convinced that there must be like loads of life. I mean, you just look in the Milky Way, you have 40, um, what will it be? Something like 40 billion of Earth-sized planets in within the habitable zone. It's like so many. And now believing that we are the only intelligent one. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, life just seems to, you know, I've always been curious, like the first spark of life, how that all happens and all that. But still, you know, for I, I've always thought about, you know, on, on some other civilization, what would it be like? What would music be like? What would what would the the first kiss be like, you know, in their in their ways, you know, or whatever it is? It's, it's fascinating to really think about that. Um, Especially, I, I, I don't believe we're alone at all, and I don't believe we're alone, and as far as being, well, we're sort of intelligent, but you know, I think there could be advanced intelligence out there, and uh, I think we're kind of silly to think that we're alone. Basically, there's a lot of people that think we're, uh, you know, an anomaly, and that we're we're here alone, and. No chance. I'm sorry to say it like that. <laughs> it might be anti-science for me to say so, but we cannot be alone. There must be yes. so many planets that have the right chemistry and the right conditions to produce life. We might not be able to recognize it as intelligent life, but it still might be there and it still might produce art and music. Maybe they will have their own Bachs and Beethoven's and Brahms's and yeah. who knows what else. That's right. Um, and math, so they always talk about math. Um, you know, uh, one of uh, the, the things that I talked about many times on the show, and I'm just going to throw it at you because I think it's interesting, and I think you may find it interesting as well. Years ago, before I was ever even looking into this topic, I had an insurance broker at my house, and he, uh, in our conversation, we, I was signing up for life insurance and. After we got done, we got into a conversation and he said he was in the Vietnam War. And I said, oh, that must have been really awful. And he said, well, not in what I was doing. And I said, what What were you doing? And he says, I was researching UFOs when it came to, I was in a special part of the Air Force and we were uh, investigating what the UFOs were as far as when there was napalming and things like that happening, these UFOs would show up and we were trying to investigate it. So basically at the end of the conversation, I said, well, what does the government think that they are? And he looked at me and he said, they think that we're a Petri dish. And I just have always thought that was such a, an amazing thing for whether it was true or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's no way I can back that up. But other than my conversation with him, but I thought it was a very interesting um, I love the reply because that's how I imagine they would look at us if they are so, so advanced. That's we will not be able to recognize them, but they will look at us and think of us like microbes. Yeah, the anthill, the old <laughs> anthill theory, you know, just not pay attention to them. And um, so I don't know if you've been paying attention, but this whole last year, which I'm going to be talking about in the crossfire coming up uh, on Thursday, but it's been quite a year. Um, you know, and when it came to, there was a guy named David Grush. I don't know if you've heard his name, but when he came forward and actually said there were crashed vehicles, when I first heard that, I went, oh, wow, that's like, that's really out there. And, uh, yeah. but it's, it's very 
interesting. And then, you know, I mean, I'm open to it, you know, that it's a possibility. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure if we're going to find out any more, if that's actually possible, but, uh, but it's, it's possible somehow they get here and, you know, but the main argument you hear a lot out there is, well, they can't get through all this space to get here and then crash on our planet. You know what I mean? It's ridiculous, that type of thing. So there's all these well, arguments, but. I can say something that I was wondering if I should say it or not, but I will say it anyway. Um, it's, and that is that I, I'm a person that doesn't like like to speculate whether they can, would crash or not. Or so because I have a lot of friends who discuss that too. Like why, if they are, if they've traveled so far away, why would it just crash on the surface? The only thing I'm thinking is like, okay, if this is true and US has uh, 30 different crashed UFOs or nine or 30 or whatever, then they should also crash in Europe. So what uh, a couple of friends of mine and me were going to do is to set up a Euro European crash retrieval uh, webpage, trying to access all information about European crashes that we can find. And then so that the local UFO organizations can go and pick it up. It's time to just solve it. Why should we yeah. wait for Schumer amendment when we can do it ourselves? Well, that's very interesting. And, and you're right. Why should it be just there? There's, you know, supposedly there's South America, there's a couple of accounts, but the only one that you hear about in Europe really is uh, that I can think of right now has been sort of debunked. I don't know if it's true or not, but David Grush has actually talked about it, but I've heard uh, that that's Italy in 1933, I believe it is. And supposedly that was some type of hoax. And I don't, I don't have the information, but I know that Kevin Randall, who's done a lot of research on it is, totally convinced it's a hoax. But I do believe I've heard, not in Europe, but things like in China and Russia. Well, Russia is considered, uh, I guess, considered part of Europe. But uh, you've heard of, you know, I mean, that would be interesting if, if they actually have these things in their possession, for sure. If it crashed somewhere in Russia, I don't think I'd dare to go there and pick up the UFO. <laughs> not now, especially, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been there five times myself and, uh, and won't be going back, but, uh, uh, it's there, there is quite a few UFO encounters relayed there in stories and the Ural mountains and all that, you know? So yeah, very interesting. Um, so your, the paper you mentioned that did not get published, yes. you know, they didn't even want to look at it, the, the journal. Do you think if, if you I had one journal that uh, where it was went to review and then it was uh, rejected after that it became clear that it's a SETI paper. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you think uh, if it, if that was rewritten perhaps or something and and I yeah, don't know because it's still interesting whether whatever it is it's not it was there and they're not there. So you know like it's still something that should be reviewed I would think. Yeah, on the other hand, I would have to remove all aliens and the alien hypothesis out of the paper and just write oh. it in a completely different style. And at the same time, I'm wondering, like, for once in my lifetime, I I felt a very strong inspiration when writing that paper with clear ideas of what I'm looking at, what I'm searching for, the statistics. And if I have to remove all that out, it's like some kind of intellectually censoring yourself 
for the favor of a publication. And I said, no, this paper will be maybe the only one, but I will leave it on archive. And the upcoming papers, I will try to censor them and work on getting through review. But that one, I want to represent what I actually thought at the moment and believed in the moment. Because later it's so easy that people can also go in and say, yeah, you were right about the observation, but you never said it openly that you meant that. It's also so easy for people to later go and say, no, but you didn't say it openly enough. Okay, we say it openly there. We see it doesn't get published. And now in the future papers, already people know my stance, what I think and what I wonder. I wanted to be honest and fair with myself, and I chose it for that paper. I, I, I think that's wonderful. I'm so glad that you're taking that stand. That's great. And uh, we are out of time. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, your information, I'll have your website also. I'll put that in the show notes below. But thank you so much. It's been been really a, a great yeah, guest. It has had some issues uh, since I started thinking about how to uh -oh. update the crash retrieval project a few hours. Just <laughs> It crashed itself with the crash retrieval. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. And you take care. Happy New right. Year. Happy New Year. All right, everyone. So we'll be back with Cody and Neil next week. And thank you so much for watching us today. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky. Mm -hmm.